Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Climate change sucks, but there are some upsides. Electric skateboards being one and e-scooters being another. In fact, the whole micro-mobility revolution is so much fun. And no one is having more fun than Oliver Bruce, the ex-Uber executive who's returned to New Zealand to become an angel investor and an agitator for micro-mobility in our cities. Oliver is the co-founder of micromobility.io, a conference, podcast and research group that's focused on the future of short-run urban transport solutions that don't kill the planet. Micromobility.io is in itself a new breed of digital company with the founders living in Helsinki, Wellington, New York and San Francisco. Now why the heck not? The earth is flat, especially when you're on an e-bike, right? Oliver, welcome to this climate business. Can you tell me what is micromobility.io? It, it, it looks like a conference, possibly. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. So uh, the, the micromobility conference and podcast is something from the micromobility industries team. And micromobility industries came out of uh, uh, a podcast that uh, my uh, co-host and I, Horace Deju, uh, started back in 20. Oh, goodness, uh, 2019, 2018. She was, we've been going a long time. Um, where we were kind of exploring this idea of what does disruptive innovation look like in lightweight electric vehicles. Um, and, and so our thesis really what at the time was um, uh, like everybody thinks that the future of electric cars or electric vehicles looks like cars. Um, but actually, if you look at the scaling, um, and, and like the vehicle and unit sales, that's not actually where a lot of innovation is happening. So yes, we're starting to get things like Teslas and everybody's very excited about Tesla. But, um, you know, in China, we're selling tens of millions of units a year when Tesla's selling 200,000 um, 200, cars, they're selling tens of millions of units a year in terms of like e-mopeds and e-bikes. And then if you looked around the world at all the e-bikes growth sales, all the growth, all the growth was off the charts. It was like 100% a year or 50% a year, um, depending on the market. Um, and, and Horace, who I did the podcast with, um, like his, he made his name in Apple um, as, as an analyst um, when the iPhone came out. So he'd been working at Nokia. Um, and uh, when the iPhone was announced, he was like, guys, this is a really big deal. And all the Nokia people that he was working with, he was working in the strategy team, were like, look, the iPhone's not that big a deal. And he's like, no, no, it is. You have to get out of here. <laughs> I, really, I really think you've miscalculated here. Uh, that Harry so- Potter thing, well, that, that Harry Potter book, that, it'll never fly. Exactly, exactly. Oh, who, who cares about wizards? Um, and so, yeah, he made his name. He went off and started writing a blog called a Simco uh, in 20, uh, about 2010. Um, and Asimco a stands for asymmetric competition. And, and so he, he, he wrote this blog and he was like, look, this is all the reasons why Apple was an incredibly disruptive company. And they've built this 
um, this business and the iPhone business is going to kind of change everything. And that, and that was at the time and back in, I mean, you were around, I'm sure at that point as well, 2009, 2010, people kind mm. of thought it was like, oh, the iPhone was interesting, but it's not going to change everything. And, and, mm. and what mm. he saw was, no, this is a computing platform. And actually, so what he'd done from there was he'd started a whole, he'd, he'd been writing a podcast, running a podcast then, which I had spent a long time listening to through the early 2010s. And then he'd gone into what is Apple going to do with its giant pile of cash? It makes most sense for them to get into making cars. And so he started this, um, this podcast looking at car manufacturing and why car manufacturing was really hard to change and it, had been, it was very entrenched. It's, um, it's not susceptible to disruptive innovation because we make cars in a very particular way that's very capital intensive, which dictates mm. a lot about mm. how the cars work. And so I had been at Uber in 2018, uh, up until 2018. And when I left, I said to him, hey, Horace, um, you're like, I'd love to work with you on this. You haven't really talked about cars for a little while. I'm really interested in transport. And um, he said, look, all the innovation is happening in electric bikes and scooters in the very low end. And it's all the cheap vehicles that nobody's paying attention to. Um, and so he started that podcast. And then from there, that kind of, you know, ballooned. And that became a conference. And now we run two conferences a year. So we run one in uh, the Bay Area and one in uh, Berlin. Um, and we make podcasts and we make videos and we do online events. Um, and we're covering this new emergent area of electric bikes and scooters and everything up to actually our thesis is all the way up to 500 kilograms. It's the stuff that isn't cars because cars are never, you know, you don't get cars that are less than 500 kilograms. So what is electric that's going to be between sort of zero, zero kgs or two kgs and 500 kgs? Because that is where we think all the interesting stuff is happening. There's a couple of interesting things in there. We're going to come back to vehicles in a minute, but I just want to talk about the nature of micromobility, the company. It's curious to to me that um, Horace lives in Finland, you live in New Zealand, your your other colleagues are based in San Francisco and New York. It really is an example of uh, the world is flat, right? Yeah, oh, totally. And it's super. I mean, weird you're kind well. of operating pre-COVID. You've, yeah, you know, like a COVID company pre-COVID. Totally. I mean, the, 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 I will. I will admit that that like the majority of our revenues came from conferences, because um, there are you know the the um, there's just a lot of sponsors out there. I mean, this is an incredibly fast-growing industry, right? And so, what we're seeing is there are a lot of players um, who have software solutions, or I mean, the th- thing that was like. <laughs> crazy is that when we first did our conference, we thought we were going to make most of our money on ticket sales. Actually, we, it wasn't that. Where we make most of our money is from sponsors and people saying, hey, I want to, um, I want to get in front of the audience that you've built. And so we're really a media business more than anything. Um, mm. And, 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 and we, we've, <laughs> um, Horace has a bit of a cult following. He's got about 106,000 people who follow him on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and so he's, um, you know, he, 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 people just kind of follow along to what he's done. But then from around that and his idea and people talk about it being in the, it sounds weird, but it's in like in the church of dead you um, about talking about disruptive innovation, because he's, he's really one of the top thinkers on this. He worked with Clayton Christensen on the disruptive innovation theory when he was at Harvard yeah. doing his undergrad and then went back after he'd finished Nokia. And when he was writing it, when he was writing a Simcoe to the Clayton Christensen Institute and worked with him on looking at disruptive innovation curves. And what does technology adoption look like? And, you know, where, what are the cr- conditions uh, and criteria underneath it? 
um, that are required to be able to make this happen. So he's sort of the thought leader. But then under that, there's just, a, you know, it was enough for us to go and build a business around content and from sponsors and being able to connect people. And now we run investment syndicates as well. So we invest in, do angel investments into companies and, and that sort of thing as well. The um, whole sector is booming, and it's a great example of, uh, do, do you remember the analogy when the internet was being built? It was sort of analogous to the railways, and sometimes the people that made money out of the railways were not the railways themselves, but the cafes along the way, the shovel manufacturers, the wagon suppliers. Um, it, micromobility is this explosive ecosystem of which you are now a part of you're an information part you're a connector and a uh, and a networker yeah totally i, I absolutely agree with you and there's <laughs> the boom bust nature of um new infrastructure is something that we talk a lot about on the on the podcast horace has a bit of a, a kind of a, a you know he's got a he's got a history um an affection for history and so we spend a lot of time talking about what does disruptive innovation and, and distribution and uh, innovation curves and um, adoption curves look like in this space. And you can see that play out. I mean, we, when I, when we did our first conference in, in um, the Bay area in um, January of 2019, that was the, so the, we had scooters on the street in New Zealand in October, 2018. And the first street uh, scooters on the street uh, that went out on any scooter company was about, uh, late 2017, but really the scale started to happen uh, in about February and March of 2018. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden we went from like, this was not even idea. Like nobody paid any attention to, to scooters. People were starting to pay attention to e-bikes, but it were, really wasn't a thing to, we had this giant boom. And right when we did our first conference was sort of like the height of that, that first boom. Um, and that was when, I think Lime raised like $300 million, Bird raised another $250 million. <laughs> and that everybody thought that they were going to be able to continue to explosively uh, expand as they had been. And then what happened is that everybody kind of realized, you know, shared micromobility, especially that model, um, is highly constrained by governments. You know, if you've got a scooter out on the street um, and the council decides they don't like you, they just go and round up all the scooters and, you know, that's a million dollars worth of inventory. Um, and th- th- there were a lot of playbooks that had come out from Uber at the time. Uh, a lot of the people who went to work in that game uh, in those companies were ex-Uber or ex-Lyft. Um, and they they thought they could play the game like that. And, and they mm-hmm. really, uh, and the investors thought they could play the game like that. And then there was a real mismatch with how cities saw it. So, yeah, that, that was the boom and then there was the bust and that, that came through 2019, 2020. Uh, COVID was obviously very tough. But what we're seeing now is, there is um, there's some really big players that are starting to come online. Um, you know, Lime had took a 80% devaluation in its, um, in its latest funding round, but they've built a really solid business. Almost every scooter operator now, global, like in terms of the large ones, are profitable. And that certainly wasn't the case a year and a half or two years ago. I suppose the definition of micro-mobility is that it is micro, right? So the actual products themselves are pretty affordable. We're talking about scooters and bicycles, uh, skateboards. We're not – so private ownership of those devices has exploded, as we know, and continues to explode. So is is the growth coming in the manufacture uh, and the brands that people are buying or – or is the growth coming in the services side, the limes, 
the the lifts, the um, what else have we got in the street at the moment? Yeah, yeah beam. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a neuron. Uh, yeah, those are the main ones uh, in New Zealand, at least. Um, the, the, so we're seeing kind of two things. So one, you're seeing um, the cities themselves are getting more comfortable with this, and that they they were really um, reflexively almost like we want to stamp this out as soon as it arrived um, and manage it. And and what they're now starting to see from a lot of cities around the world is they're saying this is a really important part of the transport mix. This is the connective tissue, especially in the shared sense, right? So so being mm-hmm. able to like walk out of a train station and hop on a scooter and be able to take it somewhere. It drops your your walking time from being say like 15 or 20 minutes to probably like five minutes. Um, and, and, you know, there's going to be, I mean, that I think is really interesting. Um, but certainly in terms of, you know, you look around the world, how do people consume vehicles? Most people own vehicles. And, you know, the, the I think where we're going to get to is especially because they're cheap, as you say, um, most people will own their own vehicle. Um, and the, and those are, those electric vehicles are going to be anything from scooters and skateboards, as you say, um, all the way up to like a 500 kg pod, um, or you know that that functions. Um, it's like a, it's it's like a single seater, <laughs> as good as a car um, in terms of its performance. Like it'll go up to 100 k's an hour, so you can ride it on the motorway. Um, but it'll be three or four wheels. It'll be small. It'll be single with maybe a second seat. Um, but the mm-hmm. whole thing will cost you ten or twenty, ten to fifteen thousand dollars new, and it'll cost almost nothing to run. And that's that's where I think we're going. We're sort of talking about the kind of vehicles you might see uh, posties riding around, and obviously, you know, that's a, oh well, I'd like to be a, cooler than the posties. <laughs> Come on, they are they're uh, way cool. Uh, I, I disagree with you there, Vincent. But um, yeah, no, no. The the like there is a company that I'm, I'm advising. Um, there's a company that I'm advising called Nimbus, N I M B U S, and if you can go to you can check out their website at www.nimbus.green. Um, but they are you know the, the, that sort of pod style vehicle. Um, I think it's really uh, really cool, and that I think you know um, there's another one as well called Arkamoto. Uh, there's a company in um, and based out of Portland, and they're building three-wheeled, um, kind of covered, uh, kind of tandem-seater electric vehicles that will cost twenty to twenty grand, you know, twenty to twenty-five grand when they when they come down here. But they're electric; they cost nothing to run, pretty much once you get them. Um, and and the re- I, sh- I want to go back to the beginning a little bit on my, why micromobility is interesting, and that's if we look at our cities. And the reason I got so interested in it is if you look at our cities, like most trips we take are short trips. So most of the trips that anybody takes in New Zealand, uh, like 50% of our trips are less than five kilometers. And, and what we've kind of done at the moment in terms of how we think about transport is everybody just has their car and everybody takes their car everywhere and you use your car for every trip. And, and why Horace was interested in micromobility is he's like, it's a disruptive innovation similar to the phone being introduced to the laptop, right? So you, you're going to have, until, until, until this phone came along, you kind of had your laptop as the primary computing device and that was how you did everything. Um, and then all of a sudden you got this phone and it was small and it wasn't perfect. It, you know, the camera was crap on it. You, in the beginning, you know, iPhones didn't even have like Microsoft Exchange. You couldn't do proper email on it or anything like that. But over time, they got better and better and better. They evolved a lot faster and they became your primary device. Um, and that's because they were with you all the time and they were far better served for the things that you wanted to do. And when we look at like New Zealand, it's like, I, I can understand why people say to me, I just want my double cab ute. 
I just want to take my car because it's better. I don't want to ride an e-bike. And I'm like, I totally get you that, you know, a scooter is not going to be the thing, but the idea that maybe you might own both, you know, you're not going to replace them, but actually, and I talk to a lot of people now, it's like, I'm buying an e-bike as a second car. You know, we'll keep our primary car. That's what we're going to use. But we'll, we'll just, you know, the times that we need to whip out and about, we can get a new bike. And, you, and then what I'll see, what we can see coming is that there's these heavy micromobility vehicles and that sort of, you know, an e-moped or a, something like yeah. that. That's a $10,000 vehicle. It costs you maybe $50, 50 to $100 a month to, to, to keep. All of a sudden becomes, you know, you'd keep that as well. And that ends up being the primary vehicle you want to use because it's way easier to park. It's way cheaper to run. Um, it's more fun. Um, it's and so it gets you, much you more know, fun. Well, so much more fun. And then you, and then, and then you don't have to think about congestion because when everybody else is like stuck in their big metal boxes on the motorway, you just zip down the middle because you can fit down the middle because it's small. I challenge um, anyone to, to go to the pub and then ride home on your e-bike and not think that you're in seventh heaven. It is so much fun. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I won't tell you about what I've done <laughs> in that space. But, yes, I agree. It is fun. You've, this you, is, you survived, yeah? Yeah, you I did survive. survive. I did survive. But the, but the idea is, right, we talk, you know, I think there's, I think what, what micromobility is going to enable, right, is that uh, generally speaking, we're going to get to this. Um, Horace talks about it as the market for miles, right? So we're going to have, if you think about it and you go, everybody at the moment until now has just thought that you have one vehicle, so you buy a car and that's what you do. And mm. actually what we're thinking about is saying, no, there's a bunch of trips you take and you're going to use a car for some of them. You're going to use these other vehicles for some of them. You'll probably own both because the mm. new vehicle is going to be way cheaper. And what you're going to find is that actually it's more fun. And then you go, we talk about it as the market for smiles. So, <laughs> and this is Horace. Sometimes I love his framing. Um, but the, you know, the, the market for smiles is I want to do the thing that's most fun and feels most tangibly enjoyable. And if you have the comparison between I can ride my e-bike and it's really fun or ride in this little electric pod and it tilts and it's, you know, great fun and it's very fast and accelerates nicely and all that sort of stuff, or I can sit in this metal box stuck in traffic, I'm going to choose that option. And I you're think sitting there, it, when you're sitting in those metal boxes, you feel like a complete douche, don't you? You know, now, well, now after having, I do. I, mean, I, 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 after having experienced cycle paths and electric bikes, I now look at my car with a kind of level of contempt that I only reserved for my old television. Yep. Well, I mean, I uh, the, the 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 funny thing has been so I I ride a I live in Wellington and I ride a a scooter, uh, like a, a, a kind of a, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty high performance scooter, but it's, but it's a great little stand on scooter and it's brilliant. You get around everywhere in the city in five minutes and you don't have to think about parking because you can pretty much rock in anywhere and just park it right outside and you don't have to think about it. And it's awesome. The thing that I now find is I ride along the road and I'm like, why are all these metal boxes parked on the side of the road? You know, like I'm stuck in with all these other cars that are moving. I want to have a safe space to operate. And I think that's where this interesting conversation is going to come up about bike lanes, which is, um, and, 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 and generally street allocation in cities, which is that we mm -hmm. allocate in our transport system, most of our transport system, if you look at the land allocation, like 80 to 90% of it is for cars. And actually, when I say cars, I actually mean that like 
probably 30 to 40% of it is for just parking the cars on the side of the road. Um, and there are, I think, better uses, use cases for, especially in our, our arterial roads, to repurpose that, that road space towards saying, no, we want to be able to have these small vehicles that can move very f- freely and flow um, in a safe space. And that's why we should probably be building a lot more protected parking, you know, a lot more protected bike lanes and stuff. And that's part of the other work that I've ended up doing with uh, New Zealand government on, on that. I uh, sp- spoke to Eric from Mevo uh, on the show a few months ago, and he quoted a yeah. figure which was pretty amazing that New Zealand, uh, in Wellington, where they did the study, cars are active, you know, like literally active in driving only 4% of their working life. So that means they're yeah. sitting uh, 96% of the time as effectively kind of wasted capital. Totally. I, I love uh, Eric. I'm an investor in Mevo uh, and I use the Mevo service uh, a lot and it's perfect for a dense downtown environment like Wellington, which is if you want to get access to a car, you can get access to a car. You can choose the car that you want to have access to. So they have Volkswagen Polos and they've got, um, and they've got these kind of A3s, nice Audi A3s and they're about to get Tiguan. So like you can get an SUV if you need it for a weekend or something like that. Mm. Um, When you take into account like, the hourly cost of running these things, I worked it out. It was like if I kept a car that was about as nice as what I can get on Mevo and I'm only driving it very infrequently, it actually works out far better off for me to just use Mevos all the time. Your analogy with uh, computers and phones is quite apposite in the sense that the devices kind of outstripped the support services around them and the analogy there with streets and uh, bike lanes is kind of uh, the same, isn't it? You know, the the devices we have now, the these micro-mobility devices are fast, cheap, accessible, so much fun. The streets have a while to catch up. And, you know, there was a time when the device, when the cell phone devices were outstripping the, um, you know, cell coverage was not great, uh, Wi-Fi was not great. The, you know, the infrastructure around a support. So is this a typical thing that happens with innovation, you know, where you get one part of the ecosystem racing ahead and the other bits have to catch up? And in this case, it's infrastructure, which is typically going to be expensive and slow. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I totally think that there's a parallel in that. Um, the, 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 the idea that we talk about in disruptive innovation is that there's this, there is something – um, people think about products, but actually what they're really buying a product to do is to solve a job to be done. Mm. And the job to be done of a car is that you want to walk out the front of your house anytime you want and have the option to take it, to take this vehicle um, at a reasonable cost to the location that you want to go. And when people say, especially, you know, Kiwis have a love addiction with cars. No, Kiwis have a love addiction with being able to go where they want to go at the time that they want to go. It's not about the car. The car just happens to be the best option that's available because we have crap public transport and we didn't do our zoning very well. Um, and, I, and I think what, what we're seeing is this, you know, this, this emergent vehicle class of light electric vehicles is forcing us to rethink um, things like street space allocation um, and that sort of stuff. And it's absolutely because the job to be done is being solved and that is, that is zooming ahead um, faster than our infrastructure has sort of 
being built and and being thinking about. Like, so for example, I spend a lot of time looking at politics and like working in politics in, in Wellington with Eric. And um, one of the things that we look at is we have a cycleway plan for Wellington. Now, the plan for that was developed in 2014. Now, in 2014, we imported 6,000 e-bikes into New Zealand, e-bikes and scooters. And they in 2015, they came out with a cycleway plan that worked. So they did the study in 2014, built the, the, the cycleway plan in 2015, and then said, like, we'll build it over the next 15 to 20 years. And what's happened since then is we are now importing about 60,000 e-bikes and scooters a year. And that's growing at about 30 to 40 to 50% a year, depending on the year. Um, and next year, we're expecting that e-bikes and scooters will outstrip all new car sales, not just like e- not electric car sales, but like all new car sales. And the Ministry of Transport in, in this is like, well, we're an oil tanker. We take a long time to, to shift around. But what it's going to require is a rethinking of how we fund infrastructure, how we think about allocation, how we think about parking and the right to parking. And this idea that we have this sort of God-given right to be able to park right outside the place that we think we want to go and park when actually that's a really crap use of land and a really crap use of space. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it'll take, it'll take some time, but I think um, the, in the same way that like when, it, when cars first came into the city, we didn't have any infrastructure for them. We didn't have traffic lights. We didn't have stop signs. Um, people would drive cars like all over the road. You didn't even have the idea of like a left and a right of the road in, in, the, in the early, early days of cars. And eventually we developed traffic signaling and we developed parking and we did all these things. And we said, yeah, we want to build transport systems on the basis of this technology. And what we're getting now is this has enabled a whole new group of um, vehicles to come along. And around that, all of the, everything else will start to shift. The transport, the infrastructure, how we build, um, how we build our cities. And um, so if you look at um, you know, all the discussion in Auckland and Wellington around parking density or sorry, around density and the fact that we're removing the minimum car parking requirements in all of our cities is going to force us to have to think about how do we build, like what, how do we get those people mobile who are living in those places and don't have a car park? Well, what are they going to use? They're going to use the, a small vehicle that's available to them and they'll probably use Amiibo when they need it if they live in a dense environment and Amiibo works in those places. Um, and transport will go from, hey, I own this car and I need to have this car serviceable at all times and I need to be able to park it outside my house too. I will select the service that I need when I need it. I'll take a bus when I need it. I'll take a, a scooter or a, a, a bike when I need it. Um, I'll take a Mevo. And, the, you know, we can do that now because we, we, before that was a massive coordination problem. Nowadays, everyone's got smartphones and they can work out what the best option is all in one go and see how to do that. When you can see the logic of it and the future kind of lays itself out like that, is it frustrating to you that the infrastructure and the kind of authorities, if you like, are moving, to your mind, they must be moving really slowly. And how do you speed that up in, you know, in your experience with working with politicians now and decision makers in that space? Are you, yeah, tell, tell me about your kind of level of frustration from, you know, pulling your hair out through to uh, gentle handholding. Where are you at yeah, on I- that spectrum? Totally. Um, I mean, I think, so, so I've done a couple of, uh, so I did some work with NZTA uh, on modeling what adoption curves in the space would look like. 
Um, and then I've also done some work with uh, Ministry of Transport looking at overall costs of all transport modes. So there was a great study that was done last year um, uh, looking at what is the per kilometer cost of every mode of transport? And it was cars and taxis and uh, shared micromobility and e-bikes and um, trucks and shipping and planes and everything. And they kind of compared all of them. And the point was that they kind of came out with is that e-bikes are by far the cheapest option to move everybody around. So we should, if we're thinking about this from a um, social equity perspective, we really want to be encouraging everybody. If you, if you, if you know, we spend one third of our, um, sorry, not one third. It is the third most expensive uh, item in a New Zealand household's budget transport. So if we can provide them uh, with options. After what? After housing after and housing, food? food? Yeah. Transport. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if all of a sudden you can give them like a really cheap option, something that's dramatically cheaper um, and provides them with the same level of freedom and mobility, um, you, you know, we should absolutely be investing in that. But then you kind of, the, the question then comes back to, okay, but who does that funding in New Zealand for the infrastructure? Well, it's a mixture of NZTA and the local councils. Local councils are already super constrained because they look at e-bike, yeah, they look at um, bike lanes and they're like, those are expensive and take away car parking, which is what everybody votes us, you know, votes us out for if we go and take away their car parking. Um, and we have to consult on everything and it's super frustrating. Um, and at the same time, uh, you, you, you have the kind of the, the central government who's gone and just spent $12 billion building new roads. And, and, mm. um, and we've got a very car centric transport system, generally speaking, like the, the thing is crazy about New Zealand, right? We have in the OECD, the highest per capita car ownership rate out of any country. <laughs> and everybody kind of wonders why we have so much congestion it's because we've built a very car centric transport system. We didn't, and we, and we did all of our zoning because everybody wanted to have like nice suburban homes with a quarter acre and stuff. So we had to sprawl our cities out, which was what we wanted in the fifties and sixties. We adopted zoning practices that were like that. And I totally get that. And it made a lot of sense at the time, but over time, that's not how we, you know, if we're, if we're growing our population at this rate, we can't keep doing what we've been doing. And so we need to shift around how that works. The thing that's been really tricky is that you can't go and invest in things like public transport everywhere. Like public transport won't work in a lot of um, locations. Like it won't, I'm, I'm down here in Christchurch at the moment. It won't work because you won't have the population density rates in a lot of places that you need to, you need to combine transport planning and, um, and zoning and all that sort of stuff. And that's a 30 year process, right? And it's very hard to do and coordinate, especially between all these, you know, local government who are freaking out about how much bills they have to pay and all this retrofitting they need to do of, um, thing, uh, of infrastructure and central government who are trying to work out how to fit all these new people that we've got in the country coming in. But something like micromobility comes along and it's, Cheap doesn't cost the government anything, but all we need to do is retrofit with a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of infrastructure to make it safe so that people feel like they can go and take a bike around. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I think the the politicians are starting to get it, but the the part that was the part that always comes along with disruptive innovation is that people dismiss it in the beginning because they think it's a toy. Oh, e-bikes aren't as serious. You know, that's not a serious mode of transport. Nobody's going to do that. We've tried to build infrastructure in the past, and nobody wanted to use it. And yet what we've got now is we've got more people buying e-bikes and scooters than they will new cars next year. That's and incredible. I think that's the paradigm. And that's the paradigm shift that we we're, that is trying, you know, it's partly me educating and it's partly just, it's already happening. Right. And it, Do you it, think we yeah. will reach a stage where there's a, a, a kind of a popularizing, you know, rather than it being a, a top down infrastructure spend, there's a kind of, we're just taking over the streets, the cyclists, 
are just gonna you know we already actually have a, a network they're called roads it's just that cyclists get squeezed <laughs> to the side right yeah it's right do. in the middle totally totally um yeah i do i do think that'll maybe happen i i mean it's it's a it's a hard one to kind of work out exactly how this will play out what is really interesting was watching what has happened with COVID? because i think COVID in every other country around the world you know if you look at paris like Paris massively, they said, look, we need to do social distancing. You can't put everybody on public transport. Let's build heaps of bike lanes and allow people to get around the city. And off the back of that, they said, well, these changes were meant to be temporary, but they're now permanent. And I think, you know, the same thing happened in Boston, New York, and um, and a lot of the sort of, and London. London rolled out like a couple of hundred miles of new um, uh, 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 bike infrastructure in the, in the last year. Um, and I think what's going to happen is that you know, we're going to start looking to all of those cities and saying, well, what are they doing? And, and it'll be a case of bringing that back down to, hopefully, bringing that back down to New Zealand and saying, we want to be as cool as all these other cities that are, we are competing for talent for and we're competing for, um, you know, uh, we want to make our places, we want to make our cities as livable as that. And yet the reality is anybody who rides, everybody kind of knows what that experience was like because we went through lockdown and, and people were posting photos all over social media isn't it so nice when there's no cars on the road that now my kids can ride their bikes around and everybody feels safe, yeah. you know? It was a marvellous time. <laughs> it, it was nice. It does feel like, you know, the day after lockdown ends, it's, it's madness on the motorway, March madness. Hey, um, what are the climate implications of micro-mobility? Yeah. Um, well, that's a fun- so, funnily enough, that's kind of why I got into this, was um, I... My so my career has kind of been in that space. I I um I I went overseas to study climate change, uh, politics and ecology, um, and business. So, so I did I did an undergraduate degree looking at all three the intersection of the three of those um in the states, and um how do we you know how do we align business people to solve environmental problems? That was sort of the question that I've been grappling with um really since I was younger. Mm-hmm. And um, the big kind of where I ended up was I was working at Uber because I could see that Uber, at least at the time when when I was uh, when we were getting involved, was you know what it was trying to do was shift the ownership model around cars by offering something that wasn't you know if you could get a if you knew you could get a ride outside your house anytime you wanted in five minutes and it was reasonably priced, people would say oh look I'm willing to go and get rid of my car. Turns out it was not that it's not quite that simple and there's a lot of problems with Uber and a whole range of other areas but I went and worked with them uh, from 2015 to 2018 and what what I was interested in is how do we rapidly drive down emissions, right? Like if you you can shift everybody out of their cars and give them options, then Mm -hmm. shifting those to electric is far faster and then we're Although in Uber's, case, in Uber's case, in Uber's case, it wasn't necessarily an an electric revolution. It was just a a, a different mode of cars, right? And and it, Ubers have actually contributed to the continuing gridlock of our inner cities. Totally, and there's there's a difference. Of, yeah, there, there is a difference between gridlock and and like emissions reduction, right? So they were th- doing things like they were making carpooling. Uh, economically viable in some cities when when they were rolling it out. We never got it here in New Zealand and Australia, but that was the intention behind it, right? Is that you can combine a bunch of people in the same vehicle because they're going in the same direction and that would allow, enable you to, um, in theory, reduce emissions on 
because you save a bunch of trips on the roads. Um, where I where where I got to on that is I actually thought Uber would end up rolling out a kind of electric autonomous fleet and that we would shift across to a service where everything was electric and everybody would just take those cars around. I still think that's going to happen. I just think it's probably going to take another 10 years uh, before we get there. But in the meantime, I, we ended up looking, I was looking at these electric vehicles, um, uh, the, the, the lightweight electric vehicles. And the thing that's cool about a scooter is that it lasts, if it, as long as it lasts for a couple of years, which is, wasn't the case with the first shared scooters that you get, but certainly the, the new ones are going to last five years uh, or longer. You have about one one hundredth the emissions of a car to move the, to move a person the same distance. Mm. And that's like a stand, like a, like an internal combustion engine car. And even on a Tesla, you know, even if you were to have everybody shift across the Teslas, you're still going to get a, like a 30 to one benefit if you put everybody on scooters and e-bikes. So in terms of efficiency, like e-bikes and e-scooters, that kind of that very low end of micromobility is about as efficient as you can get in terms of taking energy produced through the movement of um, a person and all their specific things that they need to move around. Um, So I cannot see anything else other than maybe like Zoom and the fact that everybody just gets locked down and can't travel, um, which is great. Um, but when we when we do start moving again, I cannot see anything else that offers the same level of decarbonization to our transport system anywhere yeah. near as quickly and anywhere near as cheaply. And and people want to do it. You know, it's not like we're forcing the, it's not like, oh, we're taking away a bunch of your stuff. It's like, no, 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 we're gonna give you something that's cheaper and faster and more fun. If 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 you'd like it. Oh, and it oh, and it saves the environment as well. Yeah, that, that's great. Like the single <laughs> biggest thing, someone who wants to, uh, someone who wants to like, when, they, when, when people think about wanting to save the environment and the, the personal thing that they can do, the best thing they can probably do is stop traveling to the UK every year and buy an e-bike. <laughs> you, you don't have shares in e-bikes as well as Mevo, do you? Uh, no, no, I don't. No, no. I mean, I've got, I've got. Um, you should. You should. I, I should. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually a very hard space to invest in, um, and and you know I do a fair you know I do a bit of angel investing in that space, um, and it's you know I've invested in some some pretty what I thought were pretty cool companies, but it is it's a challenging space to um, to to uh, even even those ex- the top bike manufacturers right so like uh, specialized and Trek and everything, they're all struggling at the moment. They're making they're making good profits and all that sort of stuff, but they're really struggling because the supply chain is just super constrained, and they're yeah. also hardware businesses. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it is. That is, if we get time, we'll we'll talk about that. I just want to finish this thought about the climate impact of micro mobility. Is the biggest yeah. impact the shift from ICE vehicles, so from fossil fuel powered engines to electric? Is is that the genius? kind of a superpower or or is it the size of the actual vehicle yeah it's the size so so like shifting a t- shifting from a from a uh, whatever it is a kind of standard internal combustion engine car to an electric car you 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 get you reduce your emissions by about half to it to, to two-thirds but you're still lugging around a 1.5 to two ton hunk of metal hmm about half of which is the battery um, to which, which you don't need about 95 or 98% of the time. 
So this whole thing about like, you know, oh, your leaf, your leaf or your Tesla has a, you know, whatever the, the, the latest Teslas have like 550 or 600 Ks of range. Like when do you actually use 550 or 600 Ks of range in your car? It's very, 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 very rarely. Mm. And so this is real, like the thing that I love about micromobility is that it right sizes the vehicle to the job. So, you know, most trips are small. Most vehicles should be small and suited to the trip. If you're going down to the shop, you don't need to tag, you know, lug a 1.5 or two ton vehicle down to the shop. If you can take a vehicle that weighs this about the same weight as you. You mentioned, uh, you know, the difficulty of investing in this space, and it does remind me of, um, again, you know, that like the birth of the internet. Um, mm. I was there as a journalist kind of writing about it and, and thinking, you know, this, I, I should be, we should be able to make pots of money, and yet there are these sort of pockets of danger <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of epic failures that happen as change happens. How, how are you negotiate as an investor, as an angel mm. investor, how are you starting to make judgments about where, you know, what's going to work and what's not? Do you have any thoughts about who's going to win in the micromobility space? Yeah, I mean, I think the companies, the, the shared micromobility companies in the very early days took, so this is like Lime and Beam and um, Jump and the others, took um, venture capital funding. And they used the money that they raised to buy scooters, um, which is a really inefficient way to get scooters. <laughs> You're effectively taking sheer equity money and, and plowing that into something that's a depreciating asset. Um, and that really was not a good investment. Like, yeah, and a lot of people got burned in that process. Mm. Um, mm, and I think, yeah, where, where I've kind of got to is that there are a couple of businesses. So, by the way, where are all the limes? You know, the, the I don't know how many million limes have been manufactured. Where are they now? Yeah, um, it's probably not a million. I'd say they're probably produced like in the region of a hundred and probably like a hundred to two hundred fifty thousand vehicles. They don't actually state how many they've made, but like, um, well, the ones that we have in New Zealand, um, as far as I understand, they're still in New Zealand because the vehicles themselves last and they will continue to bid for contracts here and they can roll those scooters out. Um, mm-hmm. um, or they get recycled. And actually, um, I think there's, the, you know, that, that whole process of getting uh, a vehicle recycled is, is the part that the industry didn't think about in the beginning and is now starting to think about. And that's <laughs> uh, one of the areas that I've been spending a bit of time thinking about. And um, doing. I did a webinar yesterday with um, the, the lead from um, Battery Solutions uh, which is a company that is um, doing battery recycling and thinking about scooter recycling and how to do that well and, and that sort of thing. Um, mm. Yeah. Anyway, you were telling us about your investment That's philosophy. Right. You know, how, how do you pick a winner in the micro mobility space? Yeah. So, I mean, vehicle hardware is hard. So, so I, I've made a couple of investments in the space. Um, the the I didn't invest in. Uh, I know I invested in one service play, uh, which was a software company looking at how to provide tools to, to companies that were in that space. Um, and they, they ended up kind of working out that this was pretty tricky uh, and, 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 and wrapping up the company. Um, there's another one that I invested in, which is doing autonomous bikes. So this is a company actually run by a Kiwi uh, out of Seattle. And they are looking at, um, so the, the, their, their insight was that 
everybody thinks that autonomy is going to come to cars first. And so we've gone and built the very expensive autonomous. There's about 80 billion US dollars that's gone into autonomy in the form of, um, you know, investments across the space. Um, and we don't have any cars that you can buy really at the moment that are fully autonomous. And the yeah. thing was, why are you going that way? When actually, if you could make a self-driving bike, the bike itself would relocate itself on a shared system at about 10 kilometers an hour. It could stop on a dime. If it hit anybody, it wouldn't really hurt. Um, <laughs> it's super low. It's cheap. Like you can, you can make a self-driving bike with the kind of last generation hardware and the neural network stuff. So you can build the bikes for like five or $6,000. Um, rather than like the latest autonomy things, which are two or three hundred thousand dollars for a rig, um, and in a, in a weird space, it's in a really weird regulatory space, which is bikes generally aren't regulated vehicles. So if you put a self-driving bike out on the road, like all the regulators, are like oh, I don't really know what I can do about that. I mean, you wouldn't, but the point is that you know it was an interesting space, and I certainly think um, we're starting to see that happen. So um, there's a company called Spin. Um, uh, who are owned by Ford up in the States and they are a shared micromobility operator and they have started rolling out uh, self-driving scooters. So three-wheeled scooters that will drive them. Once you finish with them, uh, as long as it's safe, they will relocate themselves back to areas of demand. And that will, I think, unlock a a heap of operational efficiencies for a lot of these uh, players. I'm seeing the combination of your local bar and autonomous scooters as a winning idea don't you think yeah that's a, <laughs> that I, is I, a marriage I, made in heaven my friend totally 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 so you know and and, and i think but that even that then becomes a really tricky area to invest in to go back to your your, your original question right it's like well what what does a good play in autonomy look like well you know do you want to own the, the tech stack that everybody uses or how you know how how do you find who the players are do you want to have the ip around specifically around self-driving bikes or and the vehicle dynamic controls and all that sort of stuff so i i you know i think that is just a space that i'm thinking about and spending a lot of time thinking uh looking at um but haven't made any any further plays in the one that i am really excited about is the one that i mentioned before nimbus who i'm an advisor for um who are looking at this heavy micromobility space so what I think, you know, we're seeing the e-bike space and, um, and and I think there's a lot of really interesting companies in there. The ones that I'm very excited about is Van Mouth, uh, who are based out of uh, the Netherlands and then um, specialized in rad power in the States. But the the um, nobody has gone and tried to build vehicles in the 5 to 500 kg category, sorry, 50 mm-hmm. to 500 kg category, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. except a company called Arkimoto, uh, which was based in, uh, uh, it's based out of Portland. They're doing three-wheeled, uh, these kind of three-wheeled vehicles that I mentioned before. Um, and I interviewed their founder because I've been watching, I've been following them since about 2013. And I interviewed their founder for the podcast in uh, November 2019. And they're tr- actually trading on the NASDAQ. And I hopped off the call and I was like, this meets all the criteria that I'm talking about. It meets, you know, it says um, they're, they're modular in their production. They can build a production like facility for $50 million um, and pr- pump out 50,000 vehicles, which means that the cost per unit is really low in terms of your factories, overheads, all that sort of stuff. Um, and they're really fun. There's heaps of demand for them. Um, and they're, they're, they, they, you can drive them on a driver's license. They, they kind of fit all these criteria that I've been looking for. And I tried to work out how to buy the stock on the NASDAQ, couldn't work out how to do it. But it's 30x in the last year, wow. um, which I you know, obviously kicked myself a little bit about. And it's now worth more than a billion dollars. Um, and I think... You know, so that was obviously a winner in that space, and I think that they are they're kind of onto something. Um, there is another company that's coming along, Nimbus, who are doing something similar in that space. So the the kind of key innovation is that they're doing tilting, 
And rather than trying to manufacture in the US, they're looking at trying to manufacture in China. And so um, they kind of there's a lot of capacity and manufacturing talent that sits in China um, that I think, you know, they've been building emopeds. Uh, they're very sophisticated emopeds for, for more than 10 years. And so there's just a lot in the ecosystem there that we can harness. So you've got this kind of nexus of where is the demand going and who is the supplier at a lowest possible cost that can meet that market demand but actually meet them at a manufacturing cost that makes it kind of an everyman vehicle. Totally. And I think the other thing that's interesting, right, especially in that kind of that heavy micromobility space, is that every, you know, say, for example, you can start selling one of these Nimbus vehicles and it's 10,000, you know, it'd be a $10,000 New Zealand vehicle. You know, it goes 160 kilometers in range. It um, goes up to 80 or 90 k's in an hour. It's covered. Um, it's got windows. It's got heating and cooling and all that sort of stuff. And you go, cool, I want to buy one of these. Well, like you're going to buy that because you're not buying another car, right? And 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 I think the um, this idea that car manufacturers would look at something like Nimbus and say, oh, cool, well, we're going to just pivot our company to be able to manufacture these low cheap vehicles is um, that's where the real disruption will happen. Not mm. from a um, hey, I'm I'm Audi and I can see that Tesla's coming along, so I'm going to pivot my 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 our production of our our cars that we currently make into another $100,000 or $150,000 electric vehicle. It's when the person who would have bought that vehicle says, oh, well, I'm just going to pick up one of these $10,000 vehicles mm. um, because they're kind of cool mm-hmm. and fun um, mm. and decide to not buy a new Audi. Mm. That's where the disruption will really happen is because car manufacturers with their overheads and the way that they've structured all their manufacturing and the, um, the fact that, like, you know, to build an auto plant, it's a $2 billion minimum investment. And so you you really have to work out how to pump out five hundred thousand dollars, sorry, five hundred thousand um, cars out of that factory to pay it off. Um, but then you you're competing against someone who's like, oh, well, they can do a five thousand a five thousand production run um, pretty cheaply and sell these vehicles, and they're sort of you know they're not perfect. They're not going to replace a car um, kind of direct one for one on on every on every feature of performance, but they're good enough. You know, and you you hop in it, it doesn't get you wet. Um, you drive from one end of town to the other. You get there safely. It's got airbags. You feel safe. You drive you know, the driver's license. Cost you nothing to run. You know, good, good enough is such a dangerous competitor in business, isn't it? Yeah. You know, good enough. Oh, you don't want to be up against good enough. You're going to yeah. always lose. Yeah. Oliver, it's been great talking to you. If if people want to find your podcast, how do they sign up? Oh yeah. Um. Uh, so the podcast is called Micro Mobility. Um, and if you just search micromobility, that's where it'll come up. <laughs> yeah, and I'm all of the Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, active talk about this sort of stuff. That's great talking to you. And we can uh, presumably attend the conference in an, either in the States or if, if we're allowed, or uh, we could dial in presumably. The conference is when? June? Uh, so we've got our first one. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to do a dial-in, though. We will do another digital conference. We did our first one in January this year, and that was re- that went really well. So I, I know we'll do another one of those. Um, but yeah, our conferences will be in Berlin in September. Um, and actually, I'm pretty. I'm going to do a small plug for that, just because if anybody happens to be listening from Germany, we are going to have uh, we're doing it at Tempelhof Airport in the middle of Berlin. And uh, the plan is to to have um, some very exciting uh, new. Uh, forms of micromobility that people can go and trial out on the uh, on the runways. <laughs> <Which I think laughs> that sounds great. 
Well, you know, we have we have thousands of listeners in Berlin, uh, just one of the many thousands uh, from around the world. Uh, Oliver Bruce, great talking to you. Thanks for your time. Yeah. I promised 40 minutes, but we burbled on a little longer. So um, all right. the best with micromobility. And hey, look, Vincent, I love your work. I, I'm so excited that there's people covering this space because, you know, um, I think there's such an opportunity here, you know, in, 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 in saying we want to solve for climate change that don't think of it as something that's like going to suck. It's going to be super exciting and you're going to end up with all these new cool things like what we're talking about. So, uh. <laughs> I love the positivity. This climate business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.